Years ago, my daughter Angela and her husband Ryan adopted two greyhound dogs. Uh, their names were Sandy and Tasha, and the dogs had been used to race. And greyhound racing is not your usual sport because greyhounds are not your usual dog. These dogs are built for speed, but uh, are they, they're built for speed, but they're wired for naps. They are the couch potatoes of the animal kingdom. They are uh, really, really not that active. We found Sandy and Tasha to be really very docile and quiet most of the time, very gentle dogs. But when you would get them running, they were really fast, really fast. And when greyhounds get on a racetrack, they're all business. They're kind of NASCARs with fur. They uh, are one of nature's fastest creatures. Let me give you some facts. Their speed is made possible by a combination of long, powerful legs, large lungs, a large heart, and a very flexible spine. They have a unique aerodynamic build that uh, is amazing. And they are built with a double gallop, a double suspension gallop, which means that all four legs can be off the ground at the same time. And all of these things combined allow greyhounds to go uh, to reach speeds of 45 miles per hour in 1.5 seconds, or three strides. 45 miles per hour in one and a half seconds or three spot, uh, strides. Now, I have never actually been to a greyhound race, but I'm told that every race begins the same way. The dogs line up at the starting gate, and they know what's coming. What's coming is a mechanical rabbit, a furry covered mechanism complete with ears and a tail. And the dogs line up at the starting gate, and this uh, rabbit is suspended on a metal rod that circles the inside railing of the track. And as the rabbit passes, the starting bell sounds, the gates fly open, and the dogs have one mission, catch that rabbit. Catch that rabbit, and the dog that crosses the finish line first wins. Now that's what's supposed to happen. But in one race, it didn't. Several years ago, one race met, made headlines. The headline read, rabbit goes nuts, dogs go crazy. It was a race like all others. The bets had been placed, the grandstands were full, the race was on. But for some reason, with the dogs in full chase, the mechanical rabbit exploded. It just exploded. Parts and pieces were thrown all over the track, and the greyhounds quickly came to a complete stop and surveyed the wreckage. They saw their goal shattered, and they didn't know what to do. Two lost their balance and were seriously injured. One went back to the starting gate and laid down and shook all over. Two of these gentle animals uncharacteristically started fighting. One chased his tail around and around. One sniffed each piece of the furry debris whimpering the whole time. 
And one was so startled that it became disoriented and it began to run the track in the wrong direction. And unfortunately, the man who controlled the metal rod was so confused by what had happened, he forgot to shut down the metal rod and the dog and the rod met head on and the dog didn't survive. What a waste. What a waste. Finely tuned, beautiful animals completely lost when they lose sight of their goal and their purpose, when they get distracted. And I can't help but see a comparison to our spiritual lives. I mean, too often we come to Jesus at a time of great need in our lives. And early on, we understand the goal completely. We want to let God love us, and we want to let God love other people through us. And we understand that we need to spend time with Him. We need to study, and we need to worship, and we need to serve, and we need to give, and we need to get rid of the sinful habits in our lives, and we need to change our attitudes, and we need to learn to submit to Him and to the leaders that He places above us in the church and in society. And we know that we need to trust Him. We know that we need to depend on Him and rest in Him and experience His grace and His healing in our lives. And we're busy pursuing him. But sometimes we get distracted. We get distracted by busyness or by friendships or by disappointment. Sometimes we get distracted by fads. And sometimes we even get so busy serving Jesus that we forget to follow Jesus. We get busy serving, and we forget to follow him. We're distracted from that. And when Christians get distracted, they just move in all sorts of directions. They do. I mean, they may just stop and sit around and do nothing. They may run in wrong directions, running after lesser goals. They may start fighting and criticizing each other. They may start sniffing around at every doctrine or fad that seems current and popular, and sometimes the fire that once burned brightly and strong ends up smoldering or flickering. And in this series, we've been talking about feeling the heat. We've talked about uh, fire being used in positive ways and in negative ways. And many times when we think about fire, we often think about it as negative, when it destroys a home or uh, when it injures someone, for example. But the fire we talked about last week was meant to be negative. It was meant to be a negative thing to punish the people of God for following God, but it ended up being harmless in comparison to the power of God. And there are times when fire can be a positive experience, like when you're sitting around one roasting marshmallows or hot dogs or when you're warming yourself by a fire. And sometimes when we talk about a baseball player on a hitting streak, we say he's on fire. Or when we say that a beautiful woman is smoking... We're referring to her beauty, not to a bad habit. And sometimes we use this imagery to indicate a passion for God. We say, they are really on fire for the Lord. And some of you are there right now. 
You are totally on fire for God. You are feeling the heat of a close friendship with God. You are feeling his power every day in your life. And you're experiencing the fire of God burning in your life right now. Some of you may be at the smoldering stage. I mean, you remember when the fire of God was white hot in your life. But if you were honest, it isn't anymore. Something has changed and there isn't the same zeal in your Christian walk and you find yourself wondering if the fire is going to go out completely. And some of you are just burned out. I don't mean that you're tired or overwhelmed. I mean it feels like the fire of God has completely gone out. It's been completely extinguished in your life and you remember the warmth that you once felt well, that was a long time ago. It's a long time ago. If you would, please turn in your Bibles or on your device to 1 Kings 18. I've referenced this event a couple of times this year, and I preached on what happened directly after this event in uh, 1 Kings 19 when Elijah ran away and hid from Jezebel. But today, I want to draw our lessons from this event where people really felt the heat. In this passage, we read about this amazing situation where God sent down fire to reignite the passion and the commitment of his people. And we'll use this passage to help us figure out how to hold on to or how to regain God's fire. But when we talk, before we talk about regaining God's fire, let's talk about how the fire begins to smolder, how it begins to die in the first place. The story indicates there's several ways we extinguish God's fire. First, we extinguish God's fire by trying to have it both ways. Let me give you a little history to start. After Solomon dies, the nation of Israel has been divided. The kings aren't following God. They are doing evil in God's sight. And Ahab is the king. And he disobeys God. In fact, the Bible says he does more evil than all of the other kings before him. And Elijah is the prophet, and God has announced through Elijah that there will be a drought in the land, that it won't rain until people turn back to God. And at this point in the story, it hasn't rained for three years. It hasn't rained even a drop for three years. And in the first part of the chapter, Elijah sets up a meeting with King Ahab and with 450 prophets of Baal, and the people of Israel are there on Mount Carmel. And look at what he says to the people when they gather. Start with verse 21. Elijah stood in front of them and said, how much longer will you try to have things both ways? If the Lord is God, worship him. But if Baal is God, worship him. The people did not say a word. Hmm. Many of the people that he's talking to have tried to have it both ways. They were still doing the things that good Jewish people would do, but they were also doing the things that good followers of Baal would do. And um, they were trying to have both God and Baal. And Elijah says, how long are you going to do that? How long are you going to try to have it both ways? And he tries to get them to make a decision, but the people don't say anything. They didn't say, we are totally committed to God. Nor did they say, it's Baal that we are following. 
they just didn't say anything. They couldn't decide, and they wanted to have it both ways. And trying to have it both ways would be like taking this kayak to a beautiful lake, and you put the kayak in the water, and you put one foot in the kayak, and you keep the other foot on the dock. I mean, you really want to be in the water. You would like to sail, but you also like the security of the ground. And you can look at the beautiful lake, and you can see other people floating, but you're never really going to enjoy floating in the lake until you make a decision whether you're going to be in the boat or whether you're going to be on the dock. You have to give up the security of land to enjoy sailing on the water. Some of you do this spiritually. You do the same thing. I mean, they have one foot in church on Sunday and the other foot in the party lifestyle on Friday or Saturday night. And they ask God to bless their relationships, maybe even give them a spouse, and they keep living according to society's sexual rules. And they expect God to answer their prayers and to help them fix their finances, but they haven't even thought of ever obeying Him in the area of giving. And their mouth sings praises to Jesus on Thursday night or on Sunday but the same mouth spews gossip and curses and negativity and criticism all week long. They have one foot in a relationship with Jesus and the other foot firmly planted in a life of selfishness and sin. And many today are trying to have it both ways. They're trying to have it both ways and that is what has put out the fire of God in their life. It has extinguished the fire. And Elijah says, how long are you going to do that? How long are you going to try to have it both ways? Literally, what he says is, how long will you waver between two opinions? And that word waver is interesting because it could also be, how long would you limp between two opinions? I kind of like that imagery of limping between two opinions. What it says is trying to have it both ways affects my walk with God, but it also affects my enjoyment of sin. It affects my walk with God, and it also affects my enjoyment with sin. Uh, You see, I have enough of God to bug me, but not enough of God to bless me. I have enough of God to bother my conscience, but not enough to bless me. And when I'm here trying to hold on to the ways of the world, I I feel guilty and ashamed by my sinful choices. And when I'm here trying to enjoy my relationship with Jesus, I, I have to hide my hypocrisy, and I can't experience the power of God in my life. You see, trying to have it both ways extinguishes God's fire in my life. So, Elijah wants to help these people make a clear choice. He wants them to make a clear choice. So, he proposes a contest. He says, here's what we'll do. We will bring two bowls in here, and you, the prophets of Baal, you can prepare that sacrifice. You can put that bowl on your altar, and then we will pray that our God calls fire down and lights the sacrifice on fire. And Elijah says, I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to put a bowl on our altar, and we'll just pray, and we'll see which God responds 
with fire. And the next part of the story brings us to the next way that the fire of God gets extinguished in our life, and that is by following false gods. Following false gods. The passage says that these people were worshiping a false god named Baal. Baal was the Canaanite god. They believed that he controlled the storms and brought rain and fertility to the land, and so that's why at this time of drought they've been praying to Baal. And so they either build an altar there or there was already an altar there. Here's a picture of a, a large altar to Baal that was discovered in Megiddo in Israel. And it is thought that it was built during the same time period that we're reading about in the Bible right now. And human sacrifices were made on this altar, primarily children. But look at what it says in verses 26 and 27. They chose their ball... Then they got it ready and they prayed to Baal all morning asking him to start the fire. They danced around the altar and shouted, answer us, Baal. But there was no answer. At noon, Elijah began making fun of them. Pray louder, he said. Baal must be a god. Maybe he's daydreaming or using the toilet or traveling somewhere. By the way, that's an accurate translation of what the passage says. Or maybe he's asleep and you have to wake him up. Now, you might be thinking, Steve, this is very interesting. This is all very interesting. But in America, we don't worship false gods. Or do we? We just don't call them that. You see, our false gods might be parked in our garage. We might worship our false gods in a stadium full of people and I think the television has become a place of worship in many of our homes. And if you don't believe me, go home and look at how the furniture is arranged where your television is. I'm guessing it's faced to make the TV the focal point of the room. There's other possible false gods. Popularity, acceptance, financial success, exercise, food, pornography, or any other addiction that we struggle with. You see... We believe that many of these things will make us happy. We believe that many of these things will make us happy, and so we give them power in our lives, and we extinguish God's fire by following false gods. We also ex extinguish His fire when we're depending on our own efforts. Let's go back to the story. They're praying, and Elijah is mocking them, so they try harder to get their false god to answer. Look at what it says in verse 28. The prophets kept shouting louder and louder, and they cut themselves with swords and knives until they were bleeding. This was the way they worshipped, and they kept it up all afternoon. But there was no answer of any kind. They called on Baal, and he was completely silent. And the longer he was silent, the harder they tried to get him to answer, and they danced, and they chanted, and they yelled, and they cut themselves, believing that these things would help Baal decide to answer them. One of the main differences between following Jesus and being a part of another religion is that in most other religions, success 
in the religion or closeness to God is based on your own efforts. It's based on what you do. It's based on your goodness. It's based on you trying really hard. And gaining God's fire isn't about our efforts. It isn't about our efforts. But it's about God's grace, God's love, God's forgiveness, God's mercy. God knows, and so do I, that I could never become good enough to earn his love. And so he just gives it to me as a gift. He doesn't even make me try to be good enough to earn his love. He just gives it to me as a gift. So why are there so many church people still trying to be good enough to get right with God? Why are there so many people still bargaining with God on their own, trying to get the good in their life to outweigh the bad in their life, trying to solve all their own problems? A sure way to extinguish God's fire in your life is to depend on your own efforts, to depend on your own efforts. Let's spend the rest of our time looking at how we regain the fire of God in our lives after we have let it go out or after it's begun to smolder. Now, I need to say this. Life really isn't as simple as a three-point plan, okay? There really aren't three magic steps to success in your life. I know it's more complicated than that. You know it's more complicated than that, and I think there's others, but today... We're going to look at three steps to regaining God's fire in your life. I know it's not that simple. There may be others, but let's look at three that will help you. Step one is to prepare for God's fire. Prepare for God's fire. When Elijah decides it's his turn, the first thing he does is he repairs the altar of the Lord that was in that place. Now, if you read uh, the rest of the story, you will see that Elijah is very concerned that the altars of the Lord are in ruin. Apparently, they have not been used, and apparently, they have been abandoned, and they have fallen into disrepair. And the people of Israel were given very specific guidelines for how the altar was to be constructed. Here is a picture of a reconstructed altar of the Lord at, Be- at Beersheba, and notice that it's square and not round. Also notice that there is a horn at each corner. You see, if you accidentally killed someone in that time when they believed in an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and a life for a life, if you accidentally killed someone, you could run to one of the altars of God, you could grab hold of that horn, and the family of the other person couldn't take revenge on you by law. The blood of the sacrifices was also... Uh, placed on each of those horns. And if you leave out those four stones and you count the rest, there are 12 stones on all four sides. And that's really significant because this is the way that Elijah rebuilds the altar. Look at what it says. Start with verse 30. Elijah told everyone to gather around him while he repaired the Lord's altar. Then he used 12 stones to build an altar in honor of the Lord. Each stone stood for one of the tribes of Israel, which was the name the Lord had given to their ancestor Jacob. Elijah dug a ditch around the altar large enough to hold about 13 quarts. He placed the wood on the altar. Then they cut the bowl into pieces and laid the meat on the wood. 
you know, as we prepare for God's fire in our life, one of the things we probably ought to spend some time doing is repairing our altars. We probably should repair our altar. The altar is the place where we commit ourselves to God again. I mean, it's the place where we restore our relationship with God. It's uh, the place where we express our trust in Him and our dependence on Him and our need for Him. But it's also a place where we resolve problems with other people. You remember what Jesus said. Jesus said, if you bring your gift to the altar and there you remember that someone has something against you, you leave your gift there and you go fix that relationship. You go and fix that relationship. So that's part of what we do at altars today. If you really want God's fire in your life, you need to prepare for the fire. You need to express your need for him, your dependence on him. You may need to commit yourself to fixing a relationship with the person who has hurt you or who you have hurt. But you know, the main purpose of altars is sacrifice. The main purpose of an altar is is sacrifice. Look at what it says. Uh, Continue with verse 33. He told the people, fill four large jugs with water and pour it over the meat and the wood. After they did this, he told them to do it two more times. They did exactly as he said until finally the water ran down the altar and filled the ditch. Now, this might seem like an insignificant part of the story, but don't overlook something. The land had been in a drought for three years. It had not rained. There was not much water. And so he told them, pour the most precious thing that you have on the altar. Pour out the most precious thing you have, not just a little bit of it, but a lot of it, 12 large jars in total. And as you repair the altar in your life, You may have to pour out what is really significant to you. What is it that you will need to give up? Maybe your bitterness. Maybe control. Maybe time. Maybe money. A hobby. A habit. A relationship. What is it that you can offer God that will help him draw you closer to him? One step is to prepare for the fire. The second is so simple that we actually might miss it. Here's what it is. Ask for God's fire. Ask for God's fire. Look at what it says. Start with verse 36. When it was time for the evening sacrifice, Elijah prayed, Our Lord, you are the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Now prove that you are the God of this nation and that I, your servant, have done this at your command. Please answer me so these people will know that you are the Lord God and that you will turn their hearts back to you. Now, I don't know how you picture this. There are some movies about the Old Testament and some dramas that I've seen where this is a very loud, showy prayer with Elijah standing there in the midst of all these people screaming out to God this prayer. That's not how I picture it. I think the power would have been in the contrast. I think it would have been much different than the prayer of the prophets of Baal. I don't think there was yelling and screaming and dancing I think it was a very simple prayer, maybe a silent prayer. 
probably a quiet prayer. How about you? If you want God's fire in your life, have you asked for it? Have you just prayed, God, I need your power in my life. I need you to change me. I I need you to help me grow. I need you to take over my life and get rid of my selfishness. The Bible tells us that many times we don't get what God wants us to have simply because we don't ask. We don't have because we don't ask God. So how often do you ask? How often do you say, God, rekindle your fire in my heart and in my life. Let your fire burn bright in me. That's a great prayer to pray every single day of your life. It's also a really good prayer to pray right now. So how about we just pause for a minute and each of us in our own words just silently ask God for his fire. Let's pray right now. Heavenly Father, we're asking, we're asking for your fire to burn bright in our life. Father, for some it's rekindling it, for some it's uh, just stoking the fire, for others, Father, it's brand new, but would you just bring your power and your fire into our life so that we can feel your heat? In Jesus' name, amen. Now look at the final step final step is respond to the fire. Respond to God's fire. When the fire comes, be ready to respond. Look at what it says. Start with verse 38. The Lord immediately sent fire, and it burned up the sacrifice, the wood and the stones. It scorched the ground everywhere around the altar and dried up every drop of water in the ditch. Stop right there a minute. Did you notice the power of God They didn't have to beg for it. It was immediate. It was immense. It came right away. It burned up the ball, and then it burned up the wood, and then it burned up the stones, and then it dried up every drop of water, and then it scorched the ground. Let's read on with the verse. When the crowd saw what had happened, they all bowed down and shouted, the Lord is God. The Lord is God. I bet they did, don't you? Just then Elijah said, grab the prophets of Baal, don't let any of them get away. So the people captured the prophets and took them to the Kishon River where Elijah killed every one of them. Seeing how the people respond to God's fire coming down from heaven gives us some insight on how we should respond when God ignites or reignites the fire in our life. First, respond with worship. Respond with worship. That's what the people did. They responded with worship. They bowed down and they shouted, the Lord is God. The Lord is God. They didn't call it a coincidence. They didn't call it a fluke of nature. They saw that it was God and they responded and they gave him all of the credit to it. And when you've been far from God and uh, you've been far from God for a time and you felt that his fire was fading in your life, and then you feel his love again, and you feel the passion of your faith returning, don't doubt it. Give God the credit. Don't give the credit to some pastor, some speaker. Respond with worship for God. Give him all of the credit. 
Thank him for continuing to love you. Thank you. Thank him for forgiving you while you wandered. Thank him for chasing after you to bring you back to a right place with him. Thank him for reigniting his fire in you. Secondly, we should respond with obedience. We should respond with obedience. They did what God had commanded them to do through Elijah. They captured the prophets of Baal so Elijah could kill them. Now, this is an uncomfortable part of the Old Testament sometimes. Why did God command these prophets to be killed? I mean, it seems like a pretty gruesome part of the Bible, and God commanded them to be killed. And the reason that God did that is because he wanted to end the evil influence they were having on the people. They were leading people away from following God. To be honest, some of you may need to kill a relationship in your life. Now, don't kill the person. But you might have to kill the relationship. If there's someone in your life that's ridiculing your faith, that's constantly influencing you away from Jesus, you should end the influence that they have over you. And don't miss what happened when this happened. As a result of responding to God's fire, as a result of returning to God, they enjoyed God's blessings. They enjoyed the blessings of being close to Him and committed to Him again. They came back to God, and God sent rain. He sent rain to water their crops and to give them drinking water. The blessings of God flow into our lives when we prepare for God's fire and when we ask for God's fire and when we respond to His fire with worship and with obedience. My friends, if you feel far from God today, He didn't move. He didn't move away from you. He wants to be close to you and to help you and He wants you to experience His fire, His best. And if you will take these steps to regain God's fire, your closeness with God will come back. And the reason your closeness with God will come back isn't that you're wise enough to take these steps. It isn't that we finally gave you three concrete steps that you can take, simple steps. It's not that at all. Look again at verse 37, what Elijah said to God in his prayer. He said this, please answer me so these people will know that you are the Lord God and that you will turn their hearts back to you. It was God turning their hearts back to him. It was God doing it. And what this tells me is God wants so much for us to be close to him. He wants so much for us to always be close to him that he is working to constantly bring us closer to him. And that reminds me of what we read about Jesus in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Here's what it says. Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. Jesus died for you to bring you safely home to God. It's all him. He wants us close. And if you feel like the fire of your faith is smoldering, even if you feel like it's gone, remember that God sent Jesus to die to bring you safely home. Isn't it time? Isn't it time to come home to him? 
I pray that you will let him reignite his fire in you today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we've wandered. We've wandered away from you. And so, Father, right now we're asking, we're asking for your fire in our lives. Father, we want to be prepared for what you're about to do. And Father, there are people in this room that have been struggling in their faith. Father, would you just let them feel your closeness to them? Would you let them feel you lovingly drawing them to you? Father, we're so thankful that you want a closeness with us, that you work to be close to us. And now, Father, we just ask that your fire will burn bright in our hearts, so bright that the whole world will see it and be drawn not to us, but to you. In Jesus' name, amen.